This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Historian Howard Zinn died in 2010. Today, he remains a model for left-wing intellectuals. In how to convey ideas to a broader public beyond academia, and also in terms of taking direct action to transform the world that it is an intellectual's profession to explain. Teaching at Spelman, a black liberal arts college for women in Atlanta, Zinn supported and advised the sit-in movement. During the war on Vietnam, he traveled to Hanoi with radical Catholic priest Daniel Berrigan to receive American prisoners whom the North Vietnamese had shot out of the sky. And, of course, he published A People's History of the United States, a book that, likely more than any other, has prompted young readers to for the very first time, see the foundational myths that we are weaned on in the United States of American innocence and meritocratic reward as lies. Lies that not only obscure atrocities from native genocide onward, but also, critically, the fact that ordinary people have organized in opposition at every turn. As Eric Foner wrote in an obituary published at The Nation, few historians manage to reach a broad non-academic audience. Those who do generally write monumental history, works that celebrate great men or heroic events. Zinn's history was different. Through a people's history and various spin-offs, Zinn's public learned about ordinary American struggles for justice, equality, and power. Foner writes, I have long been struck by how many excellent students of history first had their passion for the past sparked by reading Howard Zinn. Sometimes, to be sure, his account tended toward the Manichaean, an oversimplified narrative of the battle between the forces of light and darkness. But a people's history taught an inspiring and salutary lesson, that, despite all too frequent repression, if America has a history to celebrate, it lies in the social movements that have made this a better country. As for past heroes, Zinn insisted one should look not to presidents or captains of industry, but to radicals such as Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, and Eugene V. Debs. 
It's with all that in mind that my guest today, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, one of the most important public intellectuals of today's resurgent socialist left, has written a foreword to a new edition of You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, Zinn's autobiography. Before we move on, this, of course, is the portion of my introduction when I charm you into supporting this left-wing podcast that you listen to. And that's because this show can quite literally only exist because you, the listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We need your support to ensure that the dig is a sustainable venture over the long haul. And by sustainable, in part what I mean is that the less I have to worry about fundraising, the more I can focus on podcasting. We are also planning to get dig interviews transcribed for a new website. And that costs money too. There's also more in it for you. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter, which has tips on how to learn more about the topics we discuss on the show. $10 gets you either a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hader's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and you get a bunch of left-wing books mailed to you. So, if you're a regular listener who hasn't yet contributed, please do so now at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a few minutes. Okay, here's Kianga Yamada-Taylor, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and How We Get Free, Black Feminism in the Combahee River Collective, both from Haymarket Books. The new edition of You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train is out now from Beacon. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome back to The Dig. Hi, Dan. Very glad to be here. You write, quote, The power of Howard Zinn, the writer, has overshadowed his fascinating history as an active participant in these powerful social movements. What actions and moments most stuck out to you about the, the various roles that Zinn played across so many eras of the American left? Probably the... The two, you know, most most interesting and perhaps most formative for him was the role he played in the civil rights movement and then his role um, in the anti-war movement, the war, the movement against the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, which stemmed from his service as a, an Air Force bomber pilot in World War II. His level of involvement in the civil rights movement, I think, would probably be um, surprising to people, you know, because people are most, especially, you know, the further you get away from that period, uh, the familiarity with Zinn stems mostly from uh, his book, The uh, A People's History. But that whole framework of A People's History uh, which is to look at history from below, really comes from his involvement as an active participant. And so what that meant in um, the civil rights movement was that, you know, he was part of the um, the on-the-ground daily grind uh, of the, the, the Southern movement that often gets eclipsed in 
our, our celebrations of Martin Luther King, our celebrations of the big uh, marches. Like the spectacular confrontations. Yeah. Um, and so there, you know, Howard Zinn is involved in many unspecul- unspectacular confrontations, but you can see uh, through his writing, which is very deliberate, the the movement is really held together by the actions of ordinary activists, but also people across the South who had everything to lose, including life itself, but who learned and weathered the ups and downs of uh, what any social movement produces to really transform themselves and and transform the South. The, the, the South, after a period of time, could no longer continue to go in the way that it had been going because Black people refused to be ruled in that way. And so he charts in a very granular way the process by which people go from being afraid to becoming aware that they are really the only people who are in a position to change their circumstance. And that can come with great sacrifice, but it can also come with great heroism and also important lessons for for those of us who deal with this question about social movements, how they work, um, and what makes them effective. Those Zinn's histories definitely did overshadow his personal history, as you write. His his writing and his life were also sort of similar echoes of each other in the sense that in his life, he modeled the very sort of lives of committed struggles that he held up in his books. And as you mentioned, of course, his most famous is A People's History. Why do you think that has become one of the most popular American history books ever? There's something about getting a more complicated view of history that puts regular people at the center of it that not only makes for a more interesting rendition of, of history, but it demystifies the the perennial question that all of us who care about the condition of the world have, uh, which is... How do how can this change? What has to happen in order for things to be different, or even if they can be? And I think that Zen both takes the mystery out of that um, and debunks uh, the kind of central mythologies of American history that history is sort of moved along or motored by the actions of white men and you know, the the governing institutions um, of our great democracy, you know, it's not enough just to say that, well, that's not true and history is more complicated, but, you know, he he changes, he literally changes the, turns the story upside down and puts millions of ordinary people uh, who are often lost to history, who are rendered invisible in history and brings them into the center uh, to say that, you know, change is is complicated and it's hard, but through the collective intelligence and abilities of regular people, it can actually happen. And it's not miraculous and it's not magic, but that it is, 
you know, it's, it's these small struggles that can turn into larger struggles that fail that, you know, take us backwards sometimes. But then uh, the the conditions that put so much pressure in people's lives compel them to go to go forward. Then you hear about the, you know, the role of, of radicals and politicos who bring themselves together in organizations to try to learn from the, the lessons of the past, who try to learn from history as a way uh, to shape their strategies and tactics for you know, contemporary social movements. And so in that way, it's very dynamic and alive and, and makes more sense to people, I think, than, than the typical histories which are told from the, 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 the top down and, and, you know, are shrouded in, in mystery. Um, that he, you know, he cuts through a lot of that uh, to get to the heart of matters, which I think is, is more profound for people. You write that he not only makes ordinary people the protagonists of his histories, but also makes more ordinary events more central to the plot. And you say that he reads the impact of political actions in an unconventional way. For example, the way that he looks at the civil rights movement's, uh, quote, failure in Albany, Georgia in 1961 and 62, and the disappointingly small anti-Vietnam War protests in 1965. Tell me about the way he viewed these sort of of out-of-the-way or seemingly failed moments in in left mobilization. Well, I think the first thing is, for me at least, is understanding why that is an important observation. Because a lot of people who are unfamiliar with organizing through, you know, through no fault of their own, you know, have little idea of that. It's often the kind of failed attempts that lead to uh, the bigger successes, meaning that big successful marches that are connected to, to social movements, especially in this period, the, the 1960s don't come from heaven that they have to be built and organized. And sometimes that lesson today can be uh, distorted because you can have, you know, lots of money from foundations that, you know, swoop in and, you know, make all of these resources uh, available. But then you still have the same problem if, if it's not connected to ongoing organization um, or organizing, then, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a flash in the pan that, can bring attention to a particular issue, but doesn't create uh, the means to actually do anything about it. And so I think that there are two things at work in what Zen is trying to do. One is trying to um, really distill the way that consciousness develops. And so in the Albany, Georgia example, you know, this is perennially held up as one of the failures of the civil rights movement because it didn't create the kind of clash, the the spectacle that King uh, relied on to bring the news media in, to bring, to gather the attention of the federal government as a way to create uh, pressure to uh, get federal officials to force um, Southern officials to comply with federal law. Uh, and so this didn't happen in Albany, Georgia, because the police 
sheriff in that town just put people in jail without having, um, uh, you know, a huge confrontation around it. They just put hundreds of people um, in jail, you know, which of course might warrant its own, might warrant attention, um, except that the sheriff in, in Albany, Georgia was lauded for not beating local people and, and, and activists. And so because of this, it's seen as an unsuccessful campaign in comparison to Selma or in comparison to Birmingham um, or other well-known uh, victories within the movement. But Zen, as a participant in the Albany campaign, um, had a different viewpoint, which is that he recognized how the efforts of local people uh, to involve themselves in movement activities that involved essentially overcoming an enormous, um, at times crippling fear of the political, legal, economic establishment in that town meant that even though in these particular campaigns that, you know, there was not a, quote, victorious outcome, the victory was in the transformation of local people because they had overcome their fear. And once they had overcome their fear, they were halfway there because the political establishment in that town relied, and across the South, relied on fear that had been developed over decades through brutality, through economic terrorism, through physical and violent coercion to maintain the status quo. And so once that fear had been broken and people realized that they could actually play a role in dismantling uh, the status quo locally, that that was where the victory lied, not in whether or not there was a big campaign. And so this was an important point that could be uh, generalized, which is why I think that he put it in the book. And so even if it's not just a you know, a question of of racial terrorism and, and fear that comes out of the specific civil rights example. The bigger question is how do people overcome the reluctance that stems from the idea that we can't change our own circumstance, that either some other entity, whether it's an elected official or something else outside of us, has the power to change things, but that we don't have the power ourselves. What is the process by which that is overcome that is crucial? It's a crucial part of consciousness that involves in the willingness um, for people to not just participate in a march here or there, but to really invest themselves in uh, uh, a social movement and a political project aimed at transforming their own uh, conditions. So that that's one thing. I think with the Vietnam example, you know, he talks about the frustration of organizing demonstrations early on in the war that get very little traction. So, you know, hundreds of people um, may show up to a demonstration, but clearly that is not enough to pose any kind of challenge or resistance uh, to the American war machine. And so he walks people through two things. One is that there are things that organizers can do over a period of time that can make for more effective organizations. So, 
you know, there's a process by which people learn how to improve outreach, how to improve getting the word out about uh, a particular action. Over time, relationships can develop that put you in a position uh, to be able to reach wider numbers of people than you may be able to in an initial instance. But there's also social factors at play that have nothing to do with your organizing um, ability. And it's it's voluntarist to believe that organizers can just call mass movements into into being. Those are well, it's shaped by forces outside of our control. <laughs> but this is this is the utility of this book, right? Is that it's it's explaining that it's a combination of objective and subjective factors that you know can diverge, you know, most frequently, but they can converge as well. And if we are positioned in such a way that you know. We can sometimes take advantage of that, but many times it has nothing to do with us. And so the acceleration of the Vietnam War um, is a factor that helps to drive the the growth of the the anti-war movement. But because you had committed activists who had been involved from the very beginning, they were able to take advantage of that situation to not just, you know, sort of watch the demonstrations get bigger, but someone had to call the demonstrations, even when they were being called names by uh, the federal government. Someone had to be willing to, you know, organize the teach-ins that Zen participated in. Someone had to be willing to to invite him to come. And so you see all of the, the different elements that go into what creates the conditions for an effective movement, in this case, the the anti-war movement. And so I think, you know, Zen could write a, an autobiography that is like, you know, a thousand pages, um, and it could be compelling and interesting and, and all of that. But, you know, I, I found it interesting that, you know, he wrote a relatively modest volume. I mean, I think it's 200 some pages that he picks these different campaigns, different situations out because he's not just writing to celebrate himself. He's not writing to celebrate himself at all. He's writing based in his experience, what he thinks is useful to a new generation of activists, of people who would be radicalizing, who ask, what do we do? How do we do it? And there's no prescription. There's no, you know, there's no like map to having a successful movement. But there are things that we can learn from history about organizing. There are things that we can learn from history about how consciousness changes. And there are things that we can learn about how when those things converge, that it does create the conditions for the emergence of a movement of ordinary people that holds the power to transform a situation. Zinn, I think, was a professor at at Spelman, women's HBCU in Atlanta during the time that he was participating in the Albany campaign. So I want to ask you about how Zinn is really also this this model for how to be a left-wing public intellectual engaged with the political world, which incidentally is a role that that you've really embraced. How how do you think about approaching your role as a public-facing scholar? And what lessons do you take from Zinn's life? What is an important distinction with some, I mean, you know, people use the 
the framework of, of public intellectual. And I, I think that, you know, it's one of these things that means different things to, to different people. Zen was a, an active participant in a social movement and the movement was surrounding him. He, he was teaching at a, you know, black women's college, uh, historically black women's college in the South. And, you know, his students were trying to find ways to, to be active in this movement that was absolutely constant, would be consequential for the rest of their lives. And so um, he became an active participant in that, both on his campus um, and then within the movement at large, so much so that it cost him his job, fired from his job at Spelman. And then when he went to Boston University uh, and began to uh, speak out and actively organize against the war, president of that uh, university tried repeatedly to have Howard Zinn um, fired. The infamous John Silver. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's a level of commitment and sacrifice that, you know, is rarely seen among the kind of class of people we talk about as, as public intellectuals. You know, that's not a, a moral pejorative. It's just to say that I think that he might occupy a, a different kind of space. And so he did use his uh, position as a, a professor to, he leveraged that position to um, write uh, reports that were published in the New York Times, that were published in the uh, the Nation magazine, which helped to, uh, among other publications, which helped to elevate the political issues at stake in the movement, um, and to also frame them in such a way that uh, was important when the dominant discourse was that uh, civil rights activists wanted too much too soon. Zen could use his position to to frame these issues differently in in ways that highlighted what was at stake um, in the movement itself. You know, I think that his posture, and yeah, you know, he writes about this in the book that you know he told his he tells he would tell his students that he's not a, a neutral person that. You know, all ideas have carried the same significance uh, in, in, in weight. And so that... As the title of his book puts it, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Uh, comes from, from that. That, you know, the world requires, the, the level of injustice and inequity in the world requires that we take positions. And those positions should, should absolutely be rooted in fact, in history. Um, and, you know, they're not made up. They should be rooted in something. But that life is really too short to equivocate. You know, we have to take positions on things and then fight for them. And so for me, that's important. It's a, an ethos that I carry with me into the classroom, which is we can engage in respectful. We have to engage in respectful debates about um, ideas, but that there's, you know, there are also points of view in history, and it's worth exploring and talking about and understanding. I have certainly seen myself as uh, someone who is trying to figure out with other people 
how do we win? <laughs> what is the most effective way um, for our side, the oppressed, the working class, black people, immigrants? How do we win um, in this struggle for the survival of the planet? Um, and that, you know, when we understand the stakes of things, it's also hard to be talking about neutrality. I mean, we are talking about mm-hmm. how do we win for the sake of the survival of the planet and our species, you know, it requires some level of, of urgency to figure out. And so I write the projects that I engage with are intended to deal with those questions, to raise the political level around those questions and to say things that I think are important to consider in the movements that, that we're building. And so I hope that there is a, a, a social movement of weight and significance and of depth and breadth that certainly emerges during my teaching life that I can also be uh, an active participant in uh, as a way to, you know, help introduce students to that, but, you know, also because that it matters and, and it, it's consequential to what happens. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you cite Zinn to make a point that I've seen you make before after the Women's March, which, which is that radicals shouldn't be down on ordinary liberal people for their lack of radicalism. And you note that Zinn's own experience getting attacked by police during a demonstration is what radicalized him. Can you say a little about that? Yeah, I, I think that that's a crucial lesson to come away with from Zen. He believed in the potential of everyone to come to radical conclusions and that you can't write people off because, you know, everyone comes to those conclusions, those who do, based on a set of personal uh, experiences. I mean, some people, they read Howard Zen and decide, oh, that makes sense to me. I'm a socialist. There are probably lots of people uh, for whom that happens to. But for every one person that happens with, there are hundreds of more who don't read the book, who try to sort of get through life every day uh, the best that they can. And for those people, radicalization usually happens when there is such a gap between what you were told is possible in this country and what actually what actually takes place. In that gap emerges questions about why is there this disparity between being told that this is the greatest country in the world if you work hard and the fact that many people work hard and don't quote unquote succeed. And so you can't write people off. Or in the, the instance that I was describing uh, is that the vast majority, if not all radicals, begin as liberals, begin with liberal illusions and the ability of the American state and our governing institutions to solve the problems of this country. And so it's only through experiencing that and then seeing those institutions fail over and over again 
to be able to deliver the change that people who are looking for solutions are in hope of, that then people begin to ask deeper questions about why is this? You know, why why are we still fighting to have police not murder black people? Why is there anticipation or or controversy around you know Jason Van Dyke in Chicago's trial as to whether or not he killed Laquan McDonald? I mean, we watched it on video. We watched him, you know, shoot this child 16 times. And yet everyone is sitting around in anticipation as to whether or not he will actually be convicted uh, of a crime. And so it's seeing our institutions fail over and over again that opens up the possibility of thinking differently about where change comes from. And so if you just write those people off because they haven't come to the conclusions you have already, then we're not talking about building a mass movement anymore. We're talking about a handful of, of friends and people who all think the same way charging into a wall for social change. And that that's not going to happen. If we want to actually not just protest this or that bill or this or that action or this or that police killing, all of which can be important, but if we're actually talking about transforming American society into a democratic society, then that requires a mass movement. And a mass movement requires that the consciousness and the ideas of the mass of people transform. And so that in part is something that, you know, despite the kind of Trump insanity that we see every day, that that deep questioning of the arrangements within US society I believe is is unfolding before us. I think there are many we could point to the Ferguson uprising, the Baltimore uprising, the 13 million people who vote for an open socialist Bernie Sanders, the dramatic growth of the democratic socialists of America. There are many things that you can point to that show that in fact there is a radicalization underway within the United States and the that will grow and Included within that are people who've had liberal illusions in the United States, and those ideas will change as well. But if for those of us who have thought about these things and come to a different set of conclusions, just uh, write those people off as not coming to the right ideas quick enough, then we're never going to actually build and develop the kind of movement that's necessary, not just to tinker with the United States, but to fundamentally change it. Well, as always, thank you so much, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, both from Haymarket Books. The new edition of Howard Zinn's autobiography, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, is out now from Beacon. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that all mysteries which lead theory to mysticism find their rational solution in human practice and in the comprehension of this practice. 
While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often but not always twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review there. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends or whoever about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.